Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of InfoRisk Today and Information Security Media Group, and welcome to the second of a two-part roundtable discussion on the major trends in information risk management in the new year. Our panelists are Ron Ross, Senior Computer Scientist and Information Risk Management Leader at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, George Moore, Chief Computer Scientist at the U.S. State Department, John Carlson, Executive Vice President of BITS, the Technology Policy Division of the Financial Services Roundtable, and Rebecca Herold of Rebecca Herold Associates. In part one of our conversation, which you can find elsewhere on our website, the panelists discuss the challenges organizations face with complexity. I asked them, can complexity be addressed without automating information risk management processes? The attacks are coming at automated speed over the internet. The attackers have many more people than we have to defend. So in my opinion, at least in the kind of environment that I sit in, it would be impossible to do it without automation. Agreed. I would say, too, that automation is necessary in many different ways. I mean, one of the things that I've seen over the years is that organizations don't even know where their data is located. So how are you going to know how to protect that data if you don't even know where it resides. So one type of automation that I found is very helpful are these tools now that you can use to identify where your data, your critical data, your your, uh, PHI, protected health information, or any other types of sensitive information is located, and then keep an inventory of that up to date using automation, and then that way, you'll know where this data is at and how the risk uh, levels are based upon its location because so many breaches occur because people didn't know data was even located in, in the area where the incident occurred to begin with. So that's just one example of an automation tool that's very helpful for risk reduction now, and that's the inventory tools that exist. And I think in, in addition to the, the automation you know, point, which I, I agree with, is that you do need to still have forms for experts to talk to one another about the changing threat environment. That's one thing that the, I think the financial services community has done a very good job uh, dating back you know, 12, 13 years ago in establishing an information sharing and analysis center or an ISAC. Uh, and our ISAC has... It's a forum for experts to get together and talk about more or less on a continuous basis uh, about the changing threat environment and tactics for how to respond. It's also provided uh, through that means and other means, such as uh, the Financial Services Sector Coordinating Council, uh, forums to have discussions with government officials around the, the changing threat environment and how we can work together in partnership with the appropriate controls in place uh, to protect the information uh, or to not subvert, um, say, for example, a law enforcement investigation that may also be going on concurrently so that we can protect the industry and the sector and the economy from any sort of large-scale you know, cyber attack or, or malware attack that could affect multiple institutions. So I think it's a combination of a good, strong controls with automation at individual institutions but also a way to collaborate across the industry and where necessary with government agencies and with other sectors, since many times we're all using the same operating system or many of the same operating systems or the same suppliers across multiple sectors. 
so we have to recognize that it's a, it's a combination and, and it really has to be a, a collaboration and a partnership. I would agree with everybody who's um, said it's a combination. Certainly we can't uh, do this job of continuous monitoring without automation. It's certainly a necessary uh, capability but not sufficient. And, and I think uh, if you look around, there, as Rebecca mentioned, there are a lot of things that uh, automation can do that humans don't do very well. And certainly the inventory management and also something I know George has been very much involved in is the um, the automated checking of configuration settings that are part of the uh, some are part of the SCAP program that NIST runs. So you have these configuration settings that are established on uh, laptop computers, portable devices that actually um, eliminate attack vectors that adversaries may use to uh, compromise your systems. But ultimately, it, it, it's a necessary piece, but not sufficient because. There are a lot of things that only humans can do, and, and humans do best. And certainly when you talk about um, the insider threat and being able to monitor uh, certainly bad actors or people whose privileges should be reduced because of certain types of activities, uh, th there's a whole series of things in the management and operational space which are also very much amenable to continuous monitoring, not with automation, on a, on a regular basis as determined by the organization, but I think the combination of these activities uh, really will work well to do a, uh, what we would call a very robust continuous monitoring program. Over at State Department, you developed a scoring system, which I guess helps people within your organizations understand how they're doing in protecting the information assets as well as uh, you know, developing a good risk program. Can you address that, George, a little bit about uh, how that works and uh, why it's useful? Sure. Our system focuses currently mostly on technical risks. I'll talk in a moment about non-technical risks. Right now, we score those mostly as vulnerabilities. How much in an isolated, if this vulnerability existed or this weakness by itself, how much would that be? And we start with the uh, the common uh, vulnerability scoring system that was developed by NIST as a basis and sort of adapt and expand that to some other areas to look at actual vulnerabilities from the National Vulnerability Database that would be on the machine, missing patches, configuration settings, old passwords, lack of training, and a number of other things. We try to put those in a way that we can simply add them to get total risk on a machine or across a segment of the network and assign that to the people that are responsible. And we convert it to a simple letter grade based on the something like the average risk per machine. That's not exactly it, but it's close to that. The thing about the letter grade is that it lets managers who are not computer, computer security people know how much they should focus their IT resources on the actual technical risk. We've been working with Ron Ross in his risk management framework on trying to move that up a level from what he described as level three up to level two. That first section focuses mostly on inputs to security or fixing individual controls. The effectiveness measure approach, which we're starting to use, focuses on 15 key outcomes that the security system needs to achieve and uh, specific ways to measure whether or not we're effectively achieving those outcomes. One of those might be, as an example, keeping unmanaged hardware off the network. So making sure that for every piece of hardware that's on the network or piece of software for that matter, that you know who is managing it and then you can assess whether they're doing a good job, but first you have to know who that is. The assumption being that if you have something that's not being managed, it's going to be a, big, a really big risk and you, you need to get it off the network. But anyhow, there are about 15 of those and by measuring those, we can determine whether or not we need to take a detailed look at the individual controls that make that overall result occur. 
the effectiveness of that, especially in dealing with non-IT managers, how how's that worked out? We found that it's very effective in getting the non-IT managers to care about security because most of our ambassadors overseas have never had an F in their life, and if they suddenly get an F on security, they want to get it fixed. And they can understand that, whereas if we send them a long technical report listing things like cross-site scripting, they have no idea what we're talking about, and it, it just doesn't work from a managerial point of view. But we also think it's very important not just to measure the inputs to security, but to, to find ways to measure the uh, the end result. And uh, we don't know how that is going to work out yet because we're, that's still an experimental process, but we're very hopeful that will be valuable. One of the things that I think this conversation points to is some of the challenges that we all have in terms of communicating the risks, communicating what individuals executives should do in order to to respond to the changing challenges and in some respects you know the technology community has you know created its own language that has made it very difficult to have those types of conversations with the, on the consumer on one hand in terms of safe computing or safer computing practices uh, to the the senior executives that will be the ones that have to fund or authorize the funding of different initiatives that are out there so I think that's a ongoing challenge that we in the IT industry and the technology community need to do a better job uh, to communicate on both ends of that perspective, uh, spectrum. The other thing I, I would like to, to talk about that I think is, is of importance as well is the need to have to focus on kind of infrastructure as well as policies and that's a space that we've focused quite a bit of time and energy over the years in terms of trying to work with uh, other responsible parties to solve the various problems. Uh, example, today we're working very closely with ICANN. This is the non-for-profit that oversees the names uh, of the Internet, and they have a proposal to establish an unlimited number of, of top-level domain names. And we, for many years, have advocated that ICANN needs to do a better job to ensure that those domains that are associated with financial services have stronger security controls so that we can protect consumers or that they won't be confused that they're going on to a website that may actually not be a bank, but may be a fraudster. And so those are the type of examples that we need to work in partnership with different uh, organizations to build security into the infrastructure, uh, including software assurance and software uh, security. Uh, that would also go to cloud computing and the need to have greater assurance that if you are doing uh, functions or activities via cloud computing, you have uh, a, a recognized level of assurance that those activities are uh, secure and safe and that privacy is protected. You know, I want to just to, uh, quickly uh, follow up on, on what uh, John just talked about. I think, you know, we have to make sure that we don't uh, hold ourselves hostage to compliance activities. Uh, I know in things that um, George and, and uh, George Moore and John Stroyford have been doing in the State Department, thinking out of the box is really a big part of that whole initiative. And I think one of the things we can't lose sight of is the innovation is critical to cybersecurity, our whole business. We have, and this, this brings up, uh, I think, uh, John's point about public-private partnerships. We, we need to work closely with industry in this partnership so we can take advantage of the wonderful innovations that come out of our, our, our private sector companies, and we can take advantage of those new techniques and technologies. That's really important. 
there's some great research going on, for example, in some of our universities in the local D.C. area that are looking at bringing back a system to a known secure state almost in real time. And if that kind of research ultimately is successful, it really wouldn't make any difference what the adversary throws at you. If you can reconstitute that system more quickly, then that uh, attack can be exploited when, when the malware is actually on the system. Well, that really changes the whole dynamic of how we protect our systems. It's one small example among many out there that are going on within our our universities, our our industry. And uh, I'm always excited to to learn uh, new things, new ideas, and incorporate those back into our our cybersecurity standards and guidelines. One thing I uh, failed to mention a moment ago when we were talking about how to use scoring is that we were also able to measure the impact of using the scoring. When we did this at AID, we achieved a two-thirds reduction in risk the first year, or the first six months, actually. In the State Department, we got a 90% reduction in the first year. So that not only can you use it to motivate the executives and to provide information to the technicians about what to fix first, but you can use it to measure the overall reduction in risk and determine whether you're having an impact. You know, as we're talking about all of these risks, and I agree with what you've been saying, one of the things, though, that complicate returning to a normal state is when you're dealing with the Internet and with information that's getting out on the Internet. I've been trying to help organizations for the past few years with the social media issues, and the risks there are very complicated because you might have a denial-of-service attack or you might have some other type of attack where uh, it is coming from the internet or maybe it's uh, through some sort of other type of, of venue that's related to uh, Facebook or Twitter or somewhere else. But the problem I've seen is, yeah, you might be able to return your network back to fully functioning, but if the data has gotten out there and uh, in the blink of an eye, you have perhaps thousands or even millions of customer records that have been copied out and you you don't know where it's at, that's what a lot of organizations now are struggling with, how to keep their data from being put onto the Internet and then not being able to get it back onto the system again because basically once it's out there, it's very hard uh, to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. So... I think that is an, a risk area that a lot of organizations are really struggling with. You know, how to protect personal information and address the privacy issues, even when you do have the ability to address the more pure information security issues. I think I think Ron's point was that if you can return your network, if your data is in your network and you can return it to the desired state quickly. You can do that before the attacker is able to exploit the tool that they put on your network and, and exfiltrate the information. But you're absolutely right, Rebecca. Once it's out there, it's out there, and it'll be out well, there. Well, yeah. I mean, right now there's a lot of um, breaches occurring because of data that's been leaked out through exploits that are coming through social networking sites. And I, I found that a lot of organizations are are really trying to figure out how do you prevent that from happening. Uh, so that that's another area of risk that I think is, is going to just continue to evolve over the next few years. I also want yes, to mention, uh, Rebecca brought up privacy. Uh, we've been working very hard with the uh, CIO Council, the Privacy Committee, 
And we actually have a new appendix that we're going to be putting into our security control catalog that's going to deal specifically with privacy controls. And they're based on the fair information practice principles, uh, international standards-based. Again, we're trying to elevate the whole discussion of privacy to the level that we have in our security control catalog so those controls can be understood and be implemented by organizations uh, across the federal government. So again, that's a very important issue. I'm glad Rebecca brought that up. Yeah, and, and that's just an FYI for you, too. I mentioned earlier about the smart grid. That's something back in June of 2009, one of the first things I had our group do is a privacy impact assessment. So if you look at NISTR 7628, we have a whole volume in that um, document that is dedicated just to privacy. And right now, our group is actually creating privacy use cases that the energy sector will be able to use then to help ensure privacy, like you were saying, maps to the FIPS um, is, is in existence and is being addressed so those things don't get overlooked. Yeah, exactly. We're coming to the end. Feel free to have some concluding thoughts. Ron? Well, I think our focus um, in everything we're doing now is to try to work with our federal agencies to operationalize the cybersecurity standards and guidelines that we produced in the FISMA project for the past uh, seven or eight years. Certainly, the focus is shifting from the details under the hood where we're chasing every single vulnerability to going back up to the three tiers that we described earlier where we have a focus on cybersecurity governance, risk management governance at tier one, a good enterprise architecture implementation with a good cybersecurity architecture at tier two, and all of those activities then informing how we develop, upgrade, and build our information systems down at tier three. I think a lot of what our CISOs and CIOs face today, we're, we're in, in some sense asking a lot of folks to defend systems that are indefensible. And we're going to try to focus a lot more on building a better product and system uh, upstream. So the things that we have to deal with downstream are, are a little bit easier to handle. That uh, complexity, reducing complexity, uh, looking again at connectivity, does everything have to be connected to everything else? Probably not. And then the cultural issues that are associated with every organization. Those are the kind of the, the three C's that don't come up on the threat uh, radar a lot. But we're focusing an awful lot on those things to help uh, try to imp impact uh, the kind of security that we have uh, within our federal agencies today. George? I think what I take away from what our colleagues in the health and financial sectors uh, said is that we really have similar problems. We have similar kinds of attacks. We've often found that the effective solutions are similar as well. And as our economy becomes increasingly dependent on our online activity, these information issues create a significant risk in a number of areas. There's uh, social disruption, economic disruption. That might either be intentional or, or accidental even. But because this risk is so important, an environment where governments and the private sector work together to find these solutions is going to be a lot cheaper and more effective than having us all have to reinvent the wheel separately. So it's really great that NIST has already done so much along these lines, and it's also good to recognize that we need a lot more cooperation and, and work along these on all sides. John? Yeah, I, I would just uh, kind of close by saying that you know, our focus is on protecting consumers, uh, which include businesses as well as the, our member financial institutions. And uh, so it really starts with understanding the changing risk environment, uh, putting into place controls to mitigate those risks. And increasingly that, that results into uh, the need for partnerships and collaboration with many different parties 
uh, with a goal of trying to build in security into the infrastructure, into the policies, into the procedures. I think we also are you know, potentially in a period where there could be uh, substantial new legislation with respect to cybersecurity requirements and controls and perhaps even opportunities to expand significantly the uh, sharing of information between the government and the private industry. Uh, so all those things need to be done in a way that really protect, you know, the, the infrastructure, protect, you know, the privacy of individuals, but also is reflective of the changing risk environment that we're currently dealing with. Rebecca? I agree. I mean, with every all the tips that have already been given, definitely we need that framework. We need the collaboration. Learn from what others are doing and also work with them. Use the tools and automation where you can. Definitely you need to have a good governance structure in place, and you need to make sure that the folks who are managing your information and your systems know what they're doing. And I guess the other thing I want to emphasize is what I, I have found over the years to be such a weak point, and that's the business partners. And again, um, one of the things that I'm really trying to do is to make sure that those small and medium-sized businesses who I think are a huge um, Achilles heel for a lot of organizations that are working with them, I want to make sure that they understand what they need to do to protect the information that they're processing for their business partners. So um, as you are thinking about risk management, don't forget about your business partners. You need to make sure that they aren't leaving a, a huge hole through your back door, even when you have everything uh, locked up elsewhere. So uh, that would be one thing I'd like to pass along that might be a little bit different than what's already said. Well, obviously, we just touched on the surface of what I hope to be many future conversations with all of you. I'd like to thank Ron Ross of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, George Moore of the State Department, John Carlson of BITS, and Rebecca Herold of Rebecca Herold & Associates. For Info Risk Today and Information Security Media Group, I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.